Before I uh, give the talk, I'd like to just say, if you can't hear me, it's fine to move closer or just kind of go like this so that you remind me to speak up. So um, those two things would be helpful. I think there's just something about this time of year that uh, I can't imagine not talking about impermanence or Nietzsche because it just, it's kind of like so moving and powerful the, the way the um, trees look uh, and the way those dry leaves that are blowing around and the white pine needles are falling and the way the wind is just touching everything and noticing the moments when a leaf just lets go and falls. It's, it's extraordinary. I think it is the most powerful time to practice, um, certainly practice Vipassana. And for, for me, um, my mom died when I was young, and I think that there's also something about this time of year where I wanted to understand death so much when I was young, and every time autumn would come, I would just cry and cry and cry. Um, and it wouldn't be through the thought process. I would just feel the beauty of death, it's like there was so, there's something so mysterious about um, how much light comes out of these leaves before the darkness hits. It's it's extraordinary, really. And, and I say I would. It's almost like um, there was like a certain safety for the grief to come because there was so much beauty. And something um, deeper than life and death. It's like the, if you look at some of the trees, the buds are already formed for next year. So that question about, you know, what is life, what is death, you know, it's um, meaningful and powerful. So much of the vipassana practice is learning how to um, put aside our conceptual framework of everything and to be able to just be with things as they are without the the verbal overlay. So I think of autumn as like if you're with the movement of the breath <laughs> and you make it through kind of catching it and being with the beginning, middle, it's kind of like from that middle to the end and how um, 
beautiful it is to be with the beginning of the falling movement and you can feel that very strongly but then it starts to disappear and that's how this time of year you know can we really stay with it you know and it's like then there's November right Uh. (laughs) (laughs) and I know you know uh, as a northerner originally November and March you know and if you're really off the grid, April, mud <laughs> season, man. You know, I lived off the grid for eight eight years, and mud season, you know, you even make it through March. Where March is when I learned never to trust my mind. Don't trust your mind in March. Right? And, then, and then, you know, you make it, and then there's mud season on top of everything else. So if you're, if you're not on a dirt road, you're fine, but wow, you know. Well... How come we can't make it to the end of the breath? It's, you know, hard. It's hard to stay with it disappearing. Because if you get what it means, it's like Jesse was talking this morning about the difference between concentration and mindfulness. But if you're really with the movement of the breath, and somehow you're able to drop into it non-conceptually and it disappears, it's profound. It's um, shakes you to the core. Because in these moments, there's an understanding of our nature. So when we talk about nature, we're talking about ourselves. We're talking about our bodies. Our, our breath is our body. Our body is the earth. You know, it's, it's not separate. And so when you see in the autumn coming and going into winter, it's just like being with the end of the breath. And, and I'm trying to be encouraging because it's like if you realize why it's hard to be with the breath or with anything really, it's because it ends. This is vipassana. It's like the whole idea that can we understand the nature of life, not just we want to be at one with it because that feels good, but we don't want to understand its nature because that doesn't feel good. It changes. It ends. It's a, like a staccato. And both are true. This is the other part that's hard, that love tells us we're everything. Wisdom tells us we're nothing. Well, which one do you like? <laughs> 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 which floor would you get off? <laughs> well, usually we'll press the love button. But then we try to control with it. So anything that we can bring our attention to and stay with non-conceptually will inevitably lead to insight, understanding of how things are. And there's many benefits to, you know, we might think, well, what, you know, I've seen the end of the breath, I've seen the end of sound, I've seen the end of a physical sensation. Have you seen the end of fear? Have you seen the end of anger? Have you seen the end of joy? Really? Do you know it's impermanent? It probably wouldn't bother you so much 
if you saw the end of fear enough times. Understood its nature. (coughs) In the book Beginner's Mind, Suzuki Roshi said that nothing exists but momentarily in its present form and color. One thing flows into another and cannot be grasped. (coughs) Before the rain stops, we hear a bird. Even under the heavy snow, we see snowdrops and some new growth. A lot of us spent a lot of time with that book, Beginner's Mind. And yet, if you just sometimes take a sentence from some of these great, great teachers, it's like one thing flows into another and cannot be grasped. (coughs) That's incredible, you know, because he's saying every moment is actually ungraspable. If we really knew that deeply, we wouldn't grasp. And that's why we're here, is it's to understand that on another level, on a deeper level. Always we understand things on another level. So it's not like when we hear the teaching that we attempt to have the attention concurrent, that we try to have the attention right with what's happening as it's happening, not behind or ahead, and that we attempt to be with the texture or vibration, not with the thought about the experience. But when we we say <coughs> we say dropping into our experience, it's it's dropping into the non-conceptual reality. So it's like dropping into um, the non-conceptuality of the sound of a bird would be not just thinking about, oh, that's a chickadee. <laughs> you know, I wonder what they're doing, right, what, right? That's like conceptual. But being able to just bring the attention to the texture of the sound and noticing it appear, the texture changing, disappearing, that's dropping into the non-conceptual reality. Or if a physical sensation calls our attention in the body or sensations, we might drop our attention again into the experience. Maybe that um, those sensations are happening at the elbow area. Um, we might have a thought, oh, that's the elbow. So we're not trying to stop that. We're not trying to stop the conceptual level from appearing. But then you notice, rather than thinking about that thought, you notice that the thought, the conceptual level has appeared. You don't fight it. You can't. But you see if you can drop your attention back to the non-conceptual and stay with those sensations as they're changing and understand the difference, distinguishing the difference between the conceptual level and the pre-verbal aliveness that is beyond concept, that is actually, you know, 99% of our experience. 
So another way to say this would be that if you look at an iceberg on the top of the water, we all know we're only seeing a small part of it. That's how we're trained to be. We're trained to be in this very small little aspect of reality, the tip of the iceberg, when there's this all these other dimensions happening. And uh, many, in many ways, we say that we become a prisoner of the conceptual world, and we lose that ability to explore. And all the all the ways, you know, all the um, levels that um, you know, there's aspects of fear and excitement that come with exploration and aliveness. So the Buddha said that when you are able to um, be mindful for just even a little bit, meaning that one has dropped out of that conceptual world, maybe it's for a few seconds, maybe longer. It's the continuity of it that's important. It's the ability to sustain it for a while. Because if you sustain it for a while, you will notice things changing and ending. you'll start to see that question of like, well, who am I? Or who are you? This idea of um, that anything that appears is permanent. It starts to, um, (laughs) you know, you start to see that maybe what I thought to be permanent isn't permanent. And that's insight. But it's not coming through going through the intellect. And so this is called a non-intellectual understanding of reality. It's based on an experiential connection with the truth of of the reality. Uh, So the first insight that that happens is this understanding (coughs) of impermanence, whether it's the world of the mind or the world of the body. And then the Buddha said that because everything that appears will disappear, anything conditioned will disappear, that experience is unreliable or undependable or unsatisfactory. The, the word um, is dukkha. The word for uh, impermanence is anicca. The Pali word for um, this unreliability is and it's very important to know that we don't make insight happen it comes from drop, letting go of the conceptual dropping out of the conceptual and just seeing what happens without expectation of insight <laughs> <laughs> And so the um, third insight that can happen is insight into anatta, atta meaning self, anatta meaning um, non-self. And I think this one is often the most difficult to explain or to understand, but what's being said is that, again, if your your awareness is... um, concurrent or with experience as it's happening non-conceptually, 
that we will experience for ourselves that um, you can't find, no matter where you look, a solid, separate self. So by separate meaning that nothing exists by itself. That's the meaning of it, that there's a corelessness or an insubstantialitynessness. <laughs> you know, it's insubstantial. Whatever you say, you really um, wanted to take a good look at part of your hand, and you took the very latest scientific equipment that they have. You know, not just like what I had in biology class in high school in 1967 or whatever. You know, it's like the equipment, the technology is amazing. And I am sure, I can assure you, if if they took a very, very up-to-date modern equipment and looked at this part of my body, all you would see is space. And our attention is capable of the same thing. When we were um, driving here, Gordon gave Jesse and I a ride from Ottawa, and we were talking about um, ice skating. And I was remembering when I was a a little girl, just um, the rare times in Massachusetts on the pond or a lake uh, when there would be no snow and the lake would freeze, or the pond would freeze, and it would be the, we called it black ice. It was just um, perfect ice. And first of all, to be able to walk on water is essentially extraordinary anyway. You know, there's something about it that's so magical. But then I remember I would lie on my stomach for hours looking down into that world, Just just that world. And this is what... The pasta is like, it's like the world of our body, of our mind, of um, anything. When, you, when you're just with it, it opens up galaxies. And it's because we're trapped and you know, we think we know. Oh, I, I know what a sugar maple is. I've seen a tree chain of color before. Why should I pay attention to that, Right? I've had fruit salad before. Maybe I don't need to pay attention to this. Whatever. I've I've um, certainly paid attention to my breath before. Why should I pay attention to this? <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh, you know, it's so boring sometimes. And I mean it. Of course, you know, I'm not making this up. I'm not fabricating how hard it is to pay attention to something again and again and again and again. And that's why the first few days are so hard because very few people come into a retreat in a very refined... Mm -hmm. I don't think you walk through the grocery store like we're walking here. We can't. <laughs> they put you away if you want. <laughs> they think you are in drugs, right? You know, they think, you know, cart them away. You know, I, it's just—it's just not a refined experience. Most of us are having in the world. You know, you get a flat tire. Somebody takes your identity. 
<laughs> I, in the last few years, my credit card number has been taken twice. And it's not so much that it's taken, it's the hassle of it. You know, it's like all the automatic payments. By the time you're finished, days have gone by. You know, it's like before you get your little credit card back in the mail with a different number. And then... You have to tell everybody about it. You know, you, it's not just that you have to, like, undo everything. You know, and that's the world we're living in. It takes a lot of time. And what happens is that I notice for myself that I'll really, you know, sit in the morning, you know, start the day, and, like, I'm handling it, I'm handling it, and there'll be just one more. It's like, ping. <laughs> it's just one more little thing that happens, and the equanimity goes, you know. And it's just like, okay, start again, and you start again, and you start again. On retreat, that's so much of what you're getting the strength for, is starting again, and starting again, and starting again, and realizing that, yes, the world can be a very gross, and I don't mean by gross necessarily gross blah, but it's gross meaning not refined. About um, three and a half years ago, a uh, feral cat showed up at um, where I live <clears throat> and it's a very long story um, <coughs> but uh, she had two babies <laughs> and you know when you make a little connection with something and you you don't want it to lead to anything else, you know, but it just leads to something else and, you know, and it just getting a feral cat to the vet I have to tell you, it's just it's not normal, you know it's not, you know, it's complex you know, and it, you know, just it's just been this endlessly building complexity like um, I thought I'd be able to just leave where I live, but I have to have a house sitter because, you know, they need to be fed, right? It's an endless um, cycle. Um, And I'm very allergic to cats, so the deal is that they're not allowed in the house. But this one mother cat um, got viciously attacked. Uh, Well, Jesse and I were on retreat this winter, viciously attacked. and uh, she spent, where are you going to put her, right? So she came into the house and got very used to this experience in the house, right? I mean, it, again, it's so complex, you know. So two days, she didn't move. She almost died. And then um, getting her to the vet, uh, I mean, it, it's interesting, the development. But uh, now... She wants to come in the house sometimes, but, you know, it's like... Once in a while, she's allowed in the house, right? Well, now she's got it. She's so good at this. Um, she's never been allowed other anywhere but the kitchen, right? I mean, it's like this gradual unfolding. 
<laughs> and so, um, the other day, she managed to be loud upstairs. I mean, this, I never thought this would happen. <laughs> how, how did this happen? She wheedled herself upstairs, and there's this little balcony upstairs, this little teeny thing. And she managed to get me to open <laughs> How is it, you know, I never really thought I'd do this, you know. <laughs> and I have to say, it was incredible to watch her look around. I mean, it was just like watching a yogi, a student at a meditation retreat, have an insight. Like, but a deep insight. Mm-hmm. Because she looked around and saw the world utterly differently. Like, her whole world changed. Like, it was, it was, but she is so interesting a uh, being. She was very, it was very visible and um, very intelligent, just, just looking around. And you could see her, like, going, whoa, <laughs> you know, like, the, the perspective of her life was like, went through a 360. And she spent a long time, you know, hours just like looking around. And then you could see her sort of going, oh, that's the tree I look up at. You know, like she just like looked at the neighbor's houses and just was like, oh, there's those cats. <laughs> they give me a hard time. Right? I mean, just this whole shift. Um, and that's what we're doing in this practice. And it, it's not as easy as just taking a little hike up and walking out in the balcony for us, right? <laughs> you know, that would be great, but it isn't. Uh, this is from Sri Nazargadatta Maharaj from the book I Am That. And in it... Um, there are questions and answers to this great teacher. And he's at the point with this person, usually there's one chapter, one person asking questions. And um, you can tell he's like getting a little exasperated. You know, he's, he's, fi- he's doing his final punch you know, with like the questions. And so he said, um, it's you know, that this person's suffering, you know, the suffering that this person's having. He said, it's all due... <laughs> it's all due to your complete misunderstanding of reality. I love that. It's just like, he finally just said, look. <laughs> you, like, completely misunderstand reality. You know, and I love that. It's just like, okay, that's it, okay. And then he goes on. <laughs> your mind is steeped in the habits of... Of the language, your mind is steeped in the habits of evaluation and acquisition, and will not admit, and will not admit that the incomparable and unobtainable are waiting timelessly within your own heart for recognition. Hmm. I mean, that we will not admit is the issue. That we will not admit that the incomparable and unobtainable are waiting t- 
timelessly within our heart for recognition. This is my favorite part. It's the all you have to do. (laughs) All you have to do is abandon all memories and expectations. (laughs) Just keep yourself in utter nakedness and nothingness. And I think we hear that and it's like, it's like it's always that like, because we put too much time on it. So if you heard this and I added to this, all you have to do for a few seconds, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's possible. It's actually possible. And that's where we make the mistake again and again. We think, oh no, i got to do this step all day. I'm not going to make it. And you aren't. You know, when we put that time on it, it's too heavy we're not going to make it. But the whole point of putting yourself through a retreat, and of course I have to say the first few days are hard because we are putting time on it, and it is like, oh my God, it's only 10 in the morning, I'm not going to make it. It's hard, but the whole point is to let that thought go and go, let's see if I can just do it now. So that all we have to do, it's really that we abandon all memories and expectation just for that, those few seconds. And then it becomes possible. And of course, then we cycle into like, you know, doubt. Because we put time in it again. Suzuki Roshi said, Our unexciting way of practice may appear very negative. This is not so. It is a wise and effective way to work on ourselves. It is just very plain. (laughs) And I think there's that range of just, you know, remembering that there are times when you know, things will open up, we get these glimpses. Uh, but there are also many times where it's just that bare attention of being, knowing you're walking, knowing you're breathing, knowing you're sitting. It's so powerful when you get that, like that, ah, it's okay for it to be just that bare attention. That's what the practice is. I had a, a very difficult retreat um, this winter. I hadn't had one like this since 1984. Um, but we all know that when we had a difficult retreat, at some point we're going to look back and say, that, that was really great. You know, <laughs> That was where I really learned a lot, right? And it's true, but they, they can be hard. Um, and I was having a lot of... Um, I got... First, I got diagnosed with a partial tear of my um, ACL. Uh, and then I, I had to go out of the retreat and do physical therapy. But it turned out that it was the wrong diagnosis. So I was getting worse and worse. Um, and I finally st- <laughs> stopped the physical therapy, thank God. 
Um, but I was, you know, having even more pain on top of the pain. Um, and I, in the morning, you know, I, I'm not a super morning person, so I get a cup of tea right away, you know, wake up, caffeine. That's, that's just what I do. And I, it's a very sacred time of day for me, that morning time was just sitting there drinking my tea. And um, I was at that little balcony that I told you about with the kitty. Um, and I have a neighbor who, she has an 11-year-old now, um, and she's a jogger. And she has a, um, a ponytail, a really pretty ponytail that, like, it's just perfect, just this perfect ponytail. And she jogs like a gazelle, just beautifully, you know. Uh, and every morning... You know, I'm getting worse <laughs> and worse. And I'm watching her, like, bouncing by. <laughs> I would be okay until I saw the ponytail. <laughs> you know, I'm quiet. All experience is really slow and breaking down, and I'd see the gazelle, and I'd be fine. I'd be like, it's okay. And then I'd see the ponytail. <laughs> oh, you know, I just feel like I wasn't bouncing back. You know, like, it was that feeling of, like, Wow, am I not bouncing back? And that comparing and the judging, and it was um, jealousy, right? Just this primal jealousy would come up. And I, I haven't had to work with that in a long time. And the resistance to it at first was extraordinary. You know, so of course, what was going through my mind is she's my favorite neighbor. I really love her. You know, so that it, I couldn't. Um, I couldn't put them together. The jealousy would come up, and then it would immediately, the shutdown would happen. No, you're not jealous. You love her, right? I love her. No, it's like, oh, what about her? <laughs> 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 no, it was painful. Oh, I have to tell you, until finally, it's like, maybe I should be trying to be mindful of the jealousy, right? It's like, this is where... Being with the beginning, middle, end of a breath, I have to say, noticing the breath disappearing, it's like, I finally was just, I know this, I know this stuff, but there it was. Again, the resistance to what's happening is the most painful. And following where it's like, oh, accepting that experience and just going, oh, jealousy, yeah. I was wanting this to come up during my retreat. You know, <laughs> <laughs> On top of the physical pain, I was wanting some more emotional pain. <laughs> of course, right? But so liberating. And what's so interesting is that I love this neighborhood because people tend to give space when you know retreats happening. They come up and they're like, "Are you talking?" <laughs> it's really funny. No, no, not. And her mother. Um, drove by a couple days later after, you know, this was going on, and she slowed down. And, you know, when you're on retreat, you get very sensitive. And I hear the car slowing down, and I'm like, oh, no. And then the car breaks down. The, the window goes down. <laughs> what? And she said, oh, my daughter's having this incredible nerve pain in her neck. And she's haven't, she hasn't been able to sleep for a few nights. 
And she said, then she said, do you have any Valium? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, I was in so much pain, I have to tell you, I wanted to say, no, but if you get any, just let me know, you know. No, but it was, uh, I didn't, but um, just that, we never know, right? We compare, but we don't know. And it just blew that whole, like, trip into the smithereens. Everybody suffers. Really, I mean, you know, it's just like everybody. If you are born on the planet, (laughs) you suffer. I had a, a teacher named Sivali from Sri Lanka um, way back when I worked at a meditation center in 1978. Um, and he didn't stay with us that long, and he stayed for a few months. <clears throat> and then he went to Hawaii and um, died. So I had a, a few days to have a retreat um, and I went in to see him every day. And it was the beginning of, for me, this incredible karma, this lower back pain karma. So I was telling him about it. Um, and he must have been in so much pain. I look back and, you know. Uh, and he looked at me and he smiled, the most beautiful smile. And he just said, oh, you mustn't be afraid of the pain. And every day in my retreat, this, this, this time for five months, every day, that, that, that sentence and that encouragement and that smile came to me. It's just like, okay, you mustn't be afraid of the pain. You mustn't be afraid of the pain. And it was so helpful. So helpful. So simple, yeah. But he was so free. It was so okay with him. I think that we tend to be conditioned to expect that we shouldn't have pain. You know, it's, it's very deeply conditioned in us. And when we're born in this world, there's this range. We hear at the Buddhist teaching that there is pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, gain and loss, fame, disrepute. Uh, and that the, the peace in this practice, the happiness and peace, includes all sorrow. It really, it includes all pain. It includes all sorrow. It includes all pleasure. It includes all neutrality. And I think that um, the process of dismantling these sometimes unconscious or conscious expectations includes going through the disappointment and the grief that come up around facing that we don't have 
control or much control. I think particularly as you get old, um, you know, it's just like there's only so much you can do. You know, <laughs> you, can, you can do some stuff, but then, you know, there's a certain karma or karma that takes place. Given my lifestyle, I tend to have a lot of um, experience on airplanes, um, a lot. And often when, um, especially in recent years, the, the, the pilots tend to get information ahead of time that turbulence is going to happen. So usually um, you hear the pilot say, you know, ding, everybody sit down. You know, and there's going to be a little turbulence, or there's going to be quite a lot of turbulence. But you tend to get a warning. Uh, and this spring, I was on a plane, and we didn't get any warning. And it was like, a, you know, I've had these happen once in a while, but they're just like, you just, and um, I, I would say that I don't cherish these experiences at all. And we don't. None of us like them. And if I, I tend to like to look at everybody's faces. I tend to look around because they're so grim, right? You know, everyone's tight and everyone's so grim. And there was a woman across the aisle from me at the window seat. And just when everybody was at their most grim, and it was like, she went, Watching us change because none of us wanted to. At first, we were all angry at her. It was just like, oh, you know, this is not funny. This <laughs> <laughs> not fun. This is not funny. Whee! And she had so much mischief in her eyes that people changed. We really lightened up. <laughs> it's just like, I would say most of us were like, you know, having a joy ride, but it was like, it was just like again seeing the cat on the balcony, or watching us when we have insight. It's like, oh, I could like not be so grim. Somebody's actually having fun. You know, it's just like, it, again, anything that can open our heart up a bit and lighten us up can be helpful at times. And certainly when I was watching <laughs> the woman jogging in my neighborhood, you know, and the bouncing and the ponytail, it's like there was a part of me that really had to come to grips with that it was okay to be unhappy. Like it was really part of my retreat was just saying, oh, it's okay, I don't have to be happy. It's okay that I'm unhappy. And I don't have to be identified with it. That was so liberating. 
helping more liberating than being with the jealousy. Like the whole, you know, learning from this place of just like that way that we, we get a diagnosis, it's a long diagnosis, it's a long physical therapy, it's hard. Another diagnosis, you know, it went on and on. And just being with the whole ride is really the way it goes. I don't know if you heard that there was a hurricane. I think it was big news. The hurricane was heading toward the big island of Hawaii um, last month. Um, And what's amazing that if you live on the side of the island that we live on, um, you know you're not going to get a hurricane. I mean, there's been never, there's never been a hurricane hit on our side because there are two massive mountains, Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa, and they they um, protect us from it. Um, so, you know, if you live on the other side, they have never been hit either. But of course, they're more vulnerable. They don't have any mountains blocking it. So, you know, the warnings are coming, and they're saying to get water and you know, get some stuff and. There were waves of people, you know, getting stuff, right? There's waves of people doing something about it. But on our side of the island, (laughs) we were like, it's not going to hit us. We're not, you know, we're just like, we're fine. And then two days before it was there, you know, they started showing pictures of Hurricane Iniki, which just destroyed Kauai and really hit Oahu dead. Um, and the, the picture of Isela was the very same kind of look as Niki. So they were starting to really get to us, you know, even though us hold out, oh, it's all hard, you know, they're starting to get to us. Okay, the day before, we still were all holding out. So there's a lot of us on the side of the island. We're and they said, if you have to go, if you have to go to a shelter, there is not going to be any food or water at the shelters. Well, they got us, right? You know, it's like, wait a minute, you know, like, that doesn't sound good, right? You wouldn't want to be at a shelter with no food and water for days, right? So it's like, it's it's like the afternoon, you know, they were going to close the roads all day the next day, so we start heading for the stores, right? You know, <laughs> last minute, we're, you know... The, they ran out of bottled water. The big boat had to come and bring more water. Everybody sort of panicked in the store. And there's not that many stores, you know. So you watch everybody running around the parking lot and, the, and then the carts, and they're filled with, in Hawaii, people get water, spam, and ramen noodles. That's just the way it is, you know. There's a lot, mostly spam, some ramen noodles, and some water. And so they're... You know, people running around, and it's a panicky feeling, just like the airplane, right? The, you know, it's just like people are panicked. There's no, they ran out of water, and I'm going through the water. And um, I just happened to turn around, and I looked at the guy behind me, and he had two bags of M and M's. Shelter. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be with this guy. Like, this guy's like, he's got a 
He's stepping out of the box. <laughs> I looked at my stuff and it's like, I don't want this stuff. <laughs> and it's just like, just this, this great way that we are that I think is so important to remember that mindfulness is about really not just being in the box. It's not just about being conditioned. It's about being able to be somewhat free of the conditioning, of the concept, of the expectation. In fact, expectation kills connection. We know it. If you're with somebody you love and you expect too much of them, what happens? There's no more connection left. If you expect too much of yourself, if you expect too much of the fruit salad, you know, it's, it's no matter what, you know, you, if you expect more from the lentil soup, it's a bummer, right? It's no fun. And it's not just no fun, but it's like the Buddha distilled suffering to a very clear clear. It's so clear. It's so simple. And that's why it's so hard for us to get free of suffering. Because he's just basically saying, there is pain in this world. And we never know when it's going to happen. And there's pleasure in the world. We never know when it's going to happen. There's neutral in the world. We never know when it's going to happen. And that when we react to the appearance of pain, with aversion or fear, and we're identified with it as my fear, my anger, my jealousy, my loneliness, whatever it is, that it's that mind and that inability to be with it that's suffering. Or it's, you know, my my autumn beauty, right, and not wanting it to go to winter, right? Or it's my um, happy sitting and not wanting to be sleepy. It's like whatever it is, it's, you know, again, the first few days of retreat, the suffering, so much of it is because we have so little equanimity. We're buying into all the reactions. We don't want to be sleepy. We came here to be awake. <laughs> you know? It's so, it's, it, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's clear. So there's a certain amount of, um, you know, wise pacing, you know, that that I I hope came through the talk. But just I think Jesse and I will continue to bring this in. This the wise pacing is really um, being very careful of what we expect of ourselves and practice every day. That that. Um, trying to get something, they're trying to get something, they're trying to get rid of things, you know, that particularly if you've practiced a lot, you know, often, you know, after <laughs> many, many years, there is the suffering around what we're still suffering around. <laughs> it's really funny. It's like we are merciless 
because we think that we should be so much further along and that we shouldn't be reacting to things that we're still reacting to. You know, it's just that, again, that just the sense of being careful, being very careful of um, thinking that um, there's something else besides aversion or attachment that will be causing the suffering. It's very simple. It's that resistance, that thinking that one shouldn't have it. And then when we think we shouldn't have it come up, we can't be mindful of it. There's a kind of um, feeling experience that isn't necessarily visual to Autumn that I think is an incredible teacher for us, which is that just like even the sound of the crickets going uh, that's still here or just being next to the white pine tree and, and experiencing those needles falling or experiencing a leaf falling or just that um, it's, it's a very exquisite feeling exquisite <coughs> of letting things be or letting go so that if you get that sense of the, the needle falling or the leaf falling that's how liberation happens it's like the liberation is like there's a kind of dropping the identification with. It's instead of it being my fear and that, that tightness around the experience, that tightness around the experience is what lets go. You just let it be. It's, the, it's that, ah, oh, it feels wonderful. It's like it's, you haven't gotten rid of anything. You've just got, you've accepted, oh, fear, oh, great. <laughs> and it feels wonderful, really. Because that resistance, that tightness around it has dropped away. And that is a never-ending cycling of like you fall into liberation, you fall into understanding. It's not coming from tightening around it or trying to figure anything out. That's still a tightening, but just a, a letting be. And, and you let the practice do itself. You just keep letting it do itself, letting it do itself. And we are comical. It's like, or tragic. You know, of course we're going to go through our, you know, we, we do okay, we do okay, and then we have our little fit, you know, and then we do okay. 
It's humbling. If there's one thing that really um, you can tell somebody has gotten something from the practice, they're more humble. And if they've gotten more from the practice, you'll see that they're more humble. And if they're getting more arrogant, they're not getting from the practice what needs to be happening. Because, you know, life and it's like humbling. It's humbling. And it, it's wonderfully humbling that you could get to the point where you really feel like you don't need to know all about everything. That that you can learn. You can just learn every moment because you've let go of that. I know that. I know that. I know that. You know, it's just like maybe we don't. And that maybe I don't allows us to actually be in the present moment and be be there and then you'll learn. So let's sit for a moment, a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.